1: All right, welcome to the second hour of the show. I am so glad you could join me today. Our show is brought to you in part by FireSteel.com. It's also brought to you by our friends at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Mortgage. Patriot Home Mortgage, that is. I'll be telling you more about them coming up in just a few moments. Okay, so what is the danger in idealism? You know, when someone first suggested to me, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than an idealist. I have to admit, I was uh, I was a little bit offended. Why? Well, because I think I'm an idealist. In fact, people tell me all the time, well, you know, of course, Brian, your ideals, you uh, you think, you know, you you have the answers or you think you know all the answers. And no, I, I really don't know all the answers, but there are certain ideals that I absolutely hold to. I think the last time I really got into it with somebody over ideals was probably back in 2016. It was probably over elections and... The voting for the lesser of two evils, or as uh, as our friend James Harrigan puts it, the uh, evil of two lessers, which really seemed to be the case, at least in that election. But it's not a matter of, well, you shouldn't even have ideals in the first place. I think we need them. I think we should have ideals that cause us to stretch, even though we may fall short of them from time to time. Um, Honesty is a solid ideal. Fidelity, that's a great ideal. Does that mean everybody lives up to it all the time? No, no, of course not. In fact, sometimes uh, people fall uh, tragically short. But Paul Rosenberg has an explanation of idealism that I thought was especially timely, given that there are idealists running rampant in the streets of America. And I think uh, perhaps the most illustrative picture of this is the, uh, the car dealership that was burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin last night. As rioters were going on a rampage, and it's, it's a Mercedes dealership, okay, so this is rich people cars, or at least uh, people with more money than me. Yeah, that would be rich people. Uh, these cars burning, and I mean just car after car, going up in flames. And what made it so interesting was the big sign out there on the marquee, Black Lives Matter. Well, folks, that's exactly the the folks who came marching down the street angry because police had shot a black man earlier in the day in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and they were rioting. And so they were destroying cars. And it didn't matter if you had the sign out there. Why? Because the idealists were out there on the prowl. Now, look, I'm not going to get into the whole, well, now, Brian, not every protester is, uh, you know, a rioter, but uh, I think, who was it? Was it John Miltimore? I think it was John Miltimore pointed this out on Twitter earlier today. The NBA and Major League Baseball have solidly come out in favor of Black Lives Matter. They've got the logos on the uniforms, they've got it written there on the field. I mean, it's we are we stand with you, Black Lives Matter. Well, look at that picture of that car dealership burning and all of those cars being destroyed. And and tell me you guys just going to go ahead and look the other way and pretend that's not happening? I know what you did when China was, you know, uh, was being oppressive to people, at least the NBA. Oh, we don't see anything. There's nothing going on here. Do-do-do-do-do. You don't know. I guess, uh, you know, maybe money speaks, uh, speaks louder to them or just that that desire to be seen as as woke. But they may want to walk back, you know, their their support or at least clarify, we do not support this kind of violence. Because believe it or not, you can still support some of the things that Black Lives Matter stands for. But when you have people out there marching in the streets, and that they were marching, they were, and they were out there under the banner of Black Lives Matters, destroying property, injuring people, rioting, that is the epitome of what an idealist does. Why? Well, I like Paul Rosenberg's explanation. I'll get to that in just a moment. They're idealists because they believe they have absolute knowledge. They don't think they can be wrong. And that is a very dangerous place to be. They have perfect knowledge, so perfect that nothing you say, not even that sign up there saying Black Lives Matters on the auto dealership is enough to deter the idealist from torching as many cars as he or she could to make a point. Take from that what you will. All right, let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show.
2: Brian, when do you you think people are just going to take matters into their own hands and just start putting bullets into these people and killing them in the streets?
1: I think it's closer than than either of us would want to know.
2: I believe you're, I I think you're right, you know, because these people are really causing havoc amongst our lives here. Do you know what this is going to do to the insurance company industry? I mean, not that I'm a big fan of them, but there's going to be a ripple effect. Everybody is going to have to pay higher insurance premiums for many things when this is all over.
1: No, it's it's true. Yeah, and I, look, I, I watched the police in Kenosha last night. I got sucked into a Twitter feed that was streaming live video from there. And, I mean, it was ugly. It was one of the ugliest things. And there's been a lot of ugly stuff going on over the weekend in Portland and so forth. But um, man, you want to talk about people who are primed and just ready to fight? The guy out there with his AR-15 challenging the SWAT team in the Bearcat—I mean, like pointing his gun at the the Bearcat, threatening. You know, I, I've I've never seen anything like it. And thankfully, the cops didn't take the bait. I, I presume it's because the uh, the nihilist out there in the black block dress. Are just uh, they're trying to find martyrs for the TV cameras and for their phone cameras, so it can justify, you know, everybody else coming and, and joining the party and getting violent, and, and the cops wouldn't give them that. But your your point is well taken, and That is, it, we're we're reaching the point where people who want to be left in peace are going to have no choice but to pick up arms and defend themselves.
2: I'm pretty I'm pretty disappointed in the police. Not if they're having firearms pointed at them. I, it, I'm disappointed. That but they but keep,
1: keep in mind what set the whole thing off. And that was they were trying to take a, a guy into custody, happened to be a black guy. He ignored their commands, ran and started to jump into a car where apparently three or four of his kids were, were strapped into the car. And uh, I, I've i seen pictures. I can't tell if it's a knife he has in his hand. But bottom line is uh, he jumped in there and the policeman who was right there on his tail feared enough that, that he went ahead and shot him. Now, the guy survived. Surprisingly, he, he survived and is, is apparently in critical condition. But that was enough to, to set the next wave of unrest in motion. And, uh, and who knows where it goes from here?
2: Who knows? I don't know. I just I really wish these people would come to their senses.
1: Yeah, that's it. You, you, you and me both. Rob, thanks for the call. 801 331 Let's talk about why idealism leads to death. This is from Paul Rosenberg from his website, Free Man's Perspective. You'll find a link to this in the show notes. I love his take on things because he he can take deeply complex and emotional issues and boil them down into the things that, uh, that matter. He says, with violent idealists roaming the streets, burning things, enjoying the fact that they can scare people and so on. He says, I think a brief explanation of how idealism leads to death and frequently to mass death is in order. And he starts with the idea that there were two primary models of seeing the world that have been duking it out for a long, long time. In fact, they were most famously embodied in the rift between Plato and Aristotle, well over 2000 years ago. Now he says both men had their errors, this was a long time ago after all, but each one of them came up with a basic model of how to view the world. Now he says I'm simplifying, of course, but simplifying of course, but here they are in essence. Aristotle said, we should look at the things that are, in other words, reality, make sense of it, and draw useful conclusions from it. Plato said, everything we see is a weak version of the real and glorious things that are beyond us. We should seek the ideal and bring ourselves toward it. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, our Western civilization, as it formed in late antiquity, "...tended to take Aristotle's path, focusing mainly on reality. The Roman Church, after it had gained real power centuries later, took a very Platonic course, but they also had to give up a a good deal of that after about 1200 A.D., thanks to Thomas Aquinas, etc. And so we've been a civilization more in tune with Aristotle than with Plato. Idealism, however, reverses that and has brought masses of people back to Plato's way. And while it tends to sound good, let us hold to higher principles." When you mix that with human weaknesses, and especially when mixed with power, it leads to dark and deadly places. And he says, to explain why this is so, I'm going to use a wonderful but academic passage written by Harry J. Hogan from his introduction to the evolution of civilizations. He says, I'll pull pieces out of the quote and then elaborate. Now, unfortunately, we are up against the break here. And so this is a classic cliffhanger in which I'm going to ask you, Stick around for a couple of minutes. When we come back, I will share with you this uh, introduction from the evolution of civilizations and Paul Rosenberg's take on why idealism leads to death.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing with you this article from Paul Rosenberg, Why Idealism Leads to Death. I've been kind of proud to be an idealist for uh, much of my adult life in the sense that, yes, I have ideals, and yes, I'm not willing to yield, and I'm not willing to throw them aside for the sake of political expediency, yada, yada, yada. That's not exactly what he's talking about here, though. More what he is saying is well, it's great to have ideals. If you think you are so right that you are willing to use force to bend other people to your will, yeah, that's the kind of idealism that leads to death. And it's a very dangerous thing. So to illustrate how that uh, human weakness or that idea of let's hold to higher principles when you mix with human weakness and then mix it with power can take us to some very dark and dangerous places. He starts with a, a quote from Harry J. Hogan, from his Introduction to the Evolution of Civilizations. Harry Hogan said, In a Platonistic society, social arrangements are molded to express a rigidly idealized version of reality. And Paul Rosenberg says, This is why the Bolsheviks killed all the other socialists. In a group of humans holding to a higher principle, the principle quickly becomes rigid, and the people become rigid. If you espouse a a variant of their belief you are immediately seen as an enemy. You can find this in one or more, uh, you find this in more or less every idealistic group. So if your ideal is the great one, anyone who distracts from it is pulling people away from truth. And by doing so, they're destroying anyone who listens to them and they're destroying the future of humanity. Once real life humans take a principle as perfect, that's what you get. It's how you get self-righteous college students and kindergarten teachers breaking windows and terrorizing kids. By the way, there was a terrific meme I saw over the weekend that uh, that just made me laugh. If for no other reason, it, it illustrated that uh, that rigid thinking that that uh, says you know you have to agree with me one hundred percent. It's uh, it's the uh, non-playing uh, the NPC or the non anyway. The the gray-faced, uh, I, I forget what it I don't play games, obviously. But it's the person saying, if you don't agree with every single facet of my worldview, you're my mortal enemy. And the person he's talking to comes closer, leans in, and says, your terms are acceptable. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's, that's just too funny. Moving on. Again, a quote from Harry J. Hogan from his introduction to the evolution of civilizations. He said, quote, such institutionalization would not have the flexibility to accommodate to the pressures of a changing reality. Now here, Paul Rosenberg says, by holding your principle as high and perfect, you are also making a claim to perfect knowledge. Real humans, however, do not possess perfect godlike information. That isn't to say we're stupid or defective but we just don't have perfect knowledge. And pretending that we do has to lead us into dangerous places. He says, also bear in mind that science proper, not the kind loved by politicians, was the opposite. It held we could still be wrong about this as a fundamental and eternal principle. Idealism cannot bend, cannot adapt, cannot accommodate itself to better concepts. Humans change and endlessly. Now again, Harry Hogan, In his introduction from the evolution to civilization says, Western civilization is engaged in a constant effort to understand reality. And Paul Rosenberg says, this is our model, looking at reality, attempting to understand it, adapt to it, and if possible, use it to our benefit. The model is wide open to differing, even clashing ideas, to infinite experimentation, and to endless growth. Within Aristotle's model, then, he says, reform is always possible. Now he asks the question, does all idealism kill? All ideas held rigidly, he says, can kill and will in certain circumstances. Holding principles as stars to guide by, however, is something very different. The principle used as a guide is not a claim to perfect knowledge. Rather, it is the highest and best we can currently make out. And that's a fine thing to steer by. We need only remember that we came to that principle with incomplete knowledge. And so a human-friendly principle, like scientific findings, or at least proper scientific findings, remains open to further clarification and modification. That is honest, non-arrogant, and useful. I just love the way he explains that. Maybe I'm the one who needed to hear this, but that makes sense. Now he goes on to explain, now the idealists that we see today, especially those in the streets, are the new barbarians. Idealism tends to spawn clannishness, disgust for the other, and soon enough collective guilt and the death that follows it. This is what has flowered in 2020 A.D. under the new idealist model. White people are inherently defective and need to be put out or put down, after a good fleecing, of course. He says, as I wrote a few weeks ago... Any institution or corporation that has bowed to cancel culture has gone over to the barbarians, who are also the idealists. Now, there's a lot more to be said on this subject. He actually says it in his book, Production versus Plunder. But in practical terms, he says that's enough. And the idealists on the news are barbarians. None of us possesses perfect knowledge, and by arrogantly imagining that we do, we spawn death. So says Paul Rosenberg. What do you think of that? Eight zero one I'll take your call. I think, it's, I think this is, is one of his finest essays. And this guy really, I don't think I've ever seen him swing for the fences and miss. But it's just that reminder, you know, a little humility. The idea that a principle should be used as a guide, not as a rigid rule, but which justifies me using force to make you do what I think is right. And sadly, I see people on all sides of the political spectrum who fall prey to that kind of thinking. I've been there myself. And I'm grateful that I had a good friend and mentor who would remind me, Brian, that little tyrant inside you is starting to come out. I eventually got to where I could recognize that tyrant, and then I exiled him. Now, he still tries to make himself known from time to time, but... I don't like to give him any say wherever possible. If it's a good enough idea, it can proceed and it can succeed on its merits rather than having to be forced on people. If it's such a good idea that it has to be mandatory, meaning it has to be enforced at the point of a gun, it's probably a pretty crappy idea to start with. Take that as you will. To the phone. Caller, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you, Brian. I appreciate um you and your show. And um, I, I think it would help people to read the law. It's just a little pamphlet. I'm, I know you know, very quickly read. Um, but this idea of production versus plunder, I mean, it, it really comes down to, you know, those who work and therefore the haves and those who don't work there's for the they're the have-nots. And so the have-nots want to take what people have earned from their working. I mean that's what it comes down to. And you know, I think people don't stop to realize, you know, when somebody steals I mean, a society can't survive if stealing's okay. You know, either through the law, through politics, or directly, you know, like in California, where the police don't do anything if it's under $1,000. How can a business stay in business if it's okay to just walk in, steal from the store, and walk out? I think what people don't realize is when you're stealing something that something else has made— what you're doing is you're stealing their time. We, we all have a limited amount of time. We're all going to die sooner or later. And so how much time it took you to work and make or earn that, which you have. If somebody steals it, they're stealing part of your life, your time.
1: No, that is that is beautifully explained. Ray, we got to break here because we're up against the, the bottom of the hour. Thank you for your call. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Please check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back right after news.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I appreciate the great sponsors who helped me to, uh, well, not worry about the wolves outside my door howling by advertising on this program. They include the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. What an incredible success story, not just uh, the incredible husband-wife team of John and Heather, but uh, also Patriot Home Mortgage. Started very small not that long ago in St. George, Utah. Now 23 states strong. What that means is they have massive expertise and resources they can bring to your situation. If you are looking for a new home loan, maybe you're looking to refinance. A lot of people are jumping on right now and saying, you know, interest rates are awfully low right now. This is a good time to take advantage of it. Well, talk to my friend, John Staples, at the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Just go to staplesmortgage.com, exactly as it sounds, staplesmortgage.com. John is the guy who will go the extra mile for you. He is one of my most trusted friends. And, and I'm, this, I, this is the highest endorsement that I can give you is uh, this is a guy who I absolutely would trust. And uh, whatever credibility I have with you, I'm extending it to staplesmortgage.com and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you or someone you know needs their services, please do business with them. Tell them you heard me talk about them here on this show. Let's talk about Google taking aim at higher education. I thought this was really interesting. Maybe it's because I was having a conversation with my son today. He's headed back to school and he was telling me, yeah, I'm a little nervous. I've got uh, got a lot going on, a lot of classes. He's he's uh, He was studying to go into pharmacy and I think he may be, I don't know, maybe he's going to shift his major. Maybe he's thinking about becoming a physician's assistant or something. He's a smart kid. Yeah, he got it from his mom. Uh, way smarter than I will ever be. And I I would I tend to think of things like, well, you know, for him, college is is a snap. And in terms of simply learning, yeah, he's definitely got some serious brain power. But what I think I'm most impressed with about my boy is his willingness to work and sacrifice so that he doesn't take out student loans. He is not going to take on backbreaking debt in order to get where he wants to go and get the degree that he wants to earn. And for those of you who have been through this, you understand how difficult that can be, right? I mean, the student loans are easy to get. Oh, look, it's low interest. It's really no big deal. Come on, take some more. It's easy. As the colleges and universities and the banks collude to put backbreaking amounts of debt on these students' backs. Well, the college plan is uh, is being disrupted. And believe it or not, Google is working to disrupt the college degree. And John Miltimore says that's actually exactly what the higher education market needs. So whatever you may think of Google, it's a, good, it's a good thing. And he says colleges should be worried. Now John Miltimore says he and his wife recently hired a financial advisor who's helping them map out their financial future. And this advisor, he says, seemed stunned when they didn't want to take advantage of the U.S. Tax Code's 529 provision which helps parents save for their children's education. The advisor said, you have three kids. Odds are at least one will go to college. It's a no-brainer. But John says, well, we nonetheless demurred. He says, I like shaving my tax liability as much as the next guy, but he says, the truth is both my wife and I have serious doubts about higher education. Though we both attended college ourselves, options today look less promising than they once did. College may have been a no-brainer at one time for parents and students who could afford it, But that's no longer the case. Soaring costs, great inflation, diminishing degree value, the politicization of campuses and a host of other issues have made the once clear benefits of college less clear. By the way, is he wrong on any of those? I don't think he's wrong on on any that I can see. He says, despite all this, a large part of me still wants my kids to go to college because it feels like so few other options are available. But that could be changing. In July, Kent Walker, Google's senior vice president for global affairs and chief legal officer, announced on Twitter that the company was expanding its education options. It was a direct salvo at America's higher education industry. Walker wrote on Google's blog, college degrees are out of reach for many Americans, and you shouldn't need a college degree to have economic security. We need new, accessible job training solutions from enhanced vocational programs to online education to help america recover and rebuild now john miltimore says to be sure it's hard to imagine anyone taking on america's 600 billion dollar higher education industry but he says nevertheless a quick look at google's model shows why colleges should be worried google is launching various professional courses that offer training for specific high-paying jobs that are in high demand Program graduates can earn a Google Careers Certificate in one of the following positions. Project Manager pays $93,000 a year. Data Analyst, $66,000. UX Designer, $75,000. Now, while Google didn't say how much it would cost to earn a certificate, if it's anything close to Google's IT Support Professional Certificate, the cost is quite low, especially compared to college. That Google IT Support Program costs enrollees $49 a month that means a six-month program would cost about $300 about what many students cough up on textbooks alone in a semester according to Inc now compare that price tag to that of college where students on average pay about $30,000 per year in tuition when you figure in tuition housing room and board fees and other expenses okay so that's the overall cost not just tuition But Miltimore says, unlike college, Google won't just hand you a diploma and send you away, however. The company has promised to assist graduates in their job searches, connecting them with employers such as Intel, Bank of America, Hulu, Walmart, and Best Buy. Graduates will also be eligible for one of the hundreds of apprenticeship opportunities the company is offering. Okay, that's pretty innovative. And John Miltimore asks the question, is college worth it? In economics, he says, we use a simple term to talk about something's worth, value. And we know value is subjective. But if consumers freely purchase something, it suggests consumers place a value on that good higher than the price. Judging the value of a degree is tricky, however. It's not like buying steak at a grocery store. Buyers are mostly shielded from the costs in the short term, and the benefits of the purchase are extended out over many years. We know that for many students, college is a wonderful investment that increases their earnings, while for others it will turn out to be a poor investment because they don't graduate or they acquire job skills that don't translate into increased earnings. For example, he says, I was a bartender after receiving my undergraduate degree. I didn't make more money because I had a degree. Now, John Miltimore also says, we also know that prices and value change over time. In the case of higher education, prices have increased sharply in the last 30 years, while well, the value has diminished. As Arthur C. Brooks pointed out in The Atlantic in July, from 1989 to 2016, university costs and tuitions and fees increased by 98% in real dollars, meaning inflation adjusted, about 11 times that of the median household income. At the same time, there's compelling evidence that while the price of college is increasing sharply, the value of those degrees is diminishing because of a surplus of college diplomas. So John Miltimore says for parents like him, the idea of spending $350,000 to send his three children to university is, to be frank, slightly nauseating. All things being equal, he says, I don't see the value there. As I tell my wife, however, this doesn't mean I won't send my child to Princeton if he or she is admitted, and I believe the college is the right fit for that particular child. Over the last couple of years, he says, whenever I think about my children's futures... I'd find myself growing more and more nervous. If not college, then what? Why are there not better options? There's a huge need. And see, this is the beautiful thing about free markets, is that needs do not go unmet for very long. In a free system, innovation has a way of filling the gaps to fulfill what consumers want. Google's expansion of its accreditation system offers two things young people and their parents highly value. Number one, job training skills. Number two, prestige. He says, by the way, don't underestimate the latter. Prestige matters a lot. In fact, when you look at an actual education, many college students receive today, prestige is what they're purchasing, not education. The value of degrees have been diminishing for years, but parents and kids could still rationalize the excessive costs because there was a certain amount of status and recognition conferred simply for being in college and then graduating. He says major corporations of, like Google have more to offer than they realize. In today's marketplace, having Google on a resume can offer the same prestige as a university and arguably more in terms of job skills. Once corporations figure out their brand can offer commodities consumers want, like job training and and validation, it could disrupt the current education model. It's possible corporations could bring back a resurgence of the once popular apprentice-style learning that could be traced back to the Code of Hammurabi in ancient Babylon, through to business training programs today like Praxis or Google. He says at the very least, programs like Google Career Certificates will offer much-needed competition to the university system and additional options to young people looking to take their next step in the world. Parents of the world, he says, rejoice. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I got to take a minute here to tell you about FireSteel.com, one of my sponsors. I am so proud to have them as sponsors of the program. Because they have a product that can really, really make a difference when it counts. And that is uh, their incredible fire-starting scrapers, their their rods, their fire steels, their gobspark fire steels. They are just absolutely incredible when it comes to making a fire when it really counts. And, and when it really counts, you know, this is when people find out that, you know, if they're in an emergency or they're in a survival situation, matches can become damp or they can become useless. Lighters can run out of fuel or they can break. Old-fashioned flint and steel, I mean, if you got your mountain man skills, more power to you. But for most of us, we need something that can strike a reliable spark and work every time, even when it's wet. That's where Firesteel comes into play. And best of all, let's just say that you hear this and you think, All right, Brian, you're right, I'm going to check this out. You go to their website, firesteel.com, you watch the videos, you go through their list of products, and you say, This is great. This is for me. I'm going to do it. Here's two great things that are going to happen. Number one, when you get to checkout, you're going to enter my name as the coupon code, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, and that's going to save you 10% on your purchase. Secondly, you're going to get it in a timely fashion. Their shipping is secure. It's quick. It is sure. They are a very reliable company, and I just I tell you this because you know sometimes people are like, oh, I don't know, I ordered it five weeks ago, and I'm still waiting. I'm telling you, they are quick at getting these orders out. It's a company you can count on in more ways than one, FireSteel.com. Just remember to use my name at checkout. That's Brian with a Y. Okay, two quick items here. These are both COVID-19 related. This is an article from MarketWatch.com. The headline, Sweden has developed herd immunity after refusing to lock down, experts claim. Its coronavirus infection rate is falling. I'm not going to go deep into the article, but I want you to check it out just because this is more powerful evidence that a lot of the things that are being foisted on us and 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 manipulated onto us, whether it's masks on our kids in school, whether it's masks at the store or just, you know, the social distancing guidelines or threats that we may have to lock it down again. I, I honestly don't know why people are striving and straining so hard to just grasping for that one straw, any reason to believe that all the stuff that has been done to us in the name of fighting COVID-19 was right somehow. I'm quite convinced it wasn't. And I look at Sweden and I think, my goodness, if this is true, leading Swedish health experts claim the country has a falling coronavirus infection rate because it was one of the few that didn't go into lockdown and rejected the use of masks. Bottom line is, The people who were most vulnerable, yes, they quarantined and they were kept away from crowds. That's just common sense. And the funny thing is, most were doing this in all countries around the world before any official edicts went out. As for the rest of the population, they simply used their best judgment. They went out there and they still interacted, still engaged in commerce. Their economy stayed afloat. And now the rate of infection is falling and falling and falling. Why could that be? Well, the article says it's very likely because they have reached herd immunity. And in case you don't know, viruses will never respond to official policy. It's it's the strangest thing. It's like they don't even listen to politicians. They don't even know who I am when some politician says, you have to do this or else. They have a natural course, which has been understood for many, many years, and that is People catch the virus, they develop the antibodies, and eventually enough people develop the antibodies that the virus struggles to survive. And it can be negated. But guess how, guess how that can't happen? When you keep everybody isolated and locked away from each other. All it does is prolong how long it takes for people to get it. Get it over with. Keep the vulnerable out of the mix if you possibly can, but get it over with. And stop making us run around like a bunch of frightened sheep with masks over our faces, convinced that every person we encounter is going to be the death of us. Sorry. I just, I really struggle with with the unkindness and the vehemence with which some people feel like they have got to impose themselves on the people around them, because masks, and by the way, that can go both ways. There's a lot of anti-maskers out there, too, that would... Do well to consider you will catch more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. But moving on, great article from Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research. Let's follow the history of science instead. I don't know if you caught this last week, but Democratic presidential hopeful Joe Biden is now the most high, hope, high profile politician to promise voters that I will listen to the scientists meaning he will mandate masks and shut down the economy again if his favored scientists so advise. Even the humble members of the City Council of Milledgeville, Georgia, invoke science in four pages of whereases designed to justify a largely toothless mask mandate that directly contradicts a Georgia law against wearing masks in public, except for certain holidays. Presumably this was to deter real crime and the enforcement of which, in some places, in a city of fifty thousand, apparently hinges on a font size of a door no- on the font size of a door notice. Strange times, strange times indeed, says Robert E. Wright. One wonders why we need to elect politicians at all if they will simply defer to the scientists. Ah, but there's the rub. Which scientists? They don't agree on much, especially when it comes to the novel coronavirus and masks and such. Look at the litany of articles on the AIER website chronicling the dissents. Should we listen only to the scientists on the government payroll? But then wouldn't they essentially be unelected, unaccountable dictators? That sounds vaguely undemocratic. Sticky, this wicket. He says, plus, last time I checked, these scientists have no policy expertise in economics. Perhaps that doesn't matter as many economists have no policy expertise in economics. Is that the role of politicians then to decide which types of scientists get to dictate in different policy areas? Perhaps Biden will listen to these economists on spaceship design or military tactics. He says, I would pay good money to see that seriously. It'd be a horribly expensive boondoggle certain to raise my taxes. So why is it so important to listen to the scientists anyway? Are they suddenly less fallible than previously? Is there any science to support that belief? Because let's face it, these scientists have a pretty poor track record overall. And I love the list that he supplies here. Listen to this. Did you know that the scientists, meaning the official scientists, or those who were in tight with those in power, once believed that the Earth is a flat disk, not a sphere, and that it resides at the center of the solar system and even the entire universe? They believed that said Earth was created like 6,000 years ago. They believed complex life forms spontaneously arise from inanimate matter. They believed that species evolve by inheriting acquired characteristics. That sickness arises from an imbalance of the bodily humors or bad air, miasma, and in either case is best restored by draining the afflicted person of blood and or applying massive doses of mercury. They also believed that maternal thoughts cause birth defects. They believed that human beings are not all equal, but rather composed of races, some of which are superior to others. Just measure their skulls for proof. They believed that phlogiston and caloric exist and explain combustion, and that if you cultivate an area, rainfall in that area will increase. Rain follows the plow, and that another ice age was upon us in the 1970s. Now, Robert Wright says, that's just a small sample of some of the silly and outrageous ideas once held by the scientists. For more recent whoppers, he has a link there where you can read even more. All of those ideas have been dispelled by the functioning of science itself. So he says, please don't mistake my point. The scientific method is one of the few rational methods of thought some humans employ. And it does help to refine our understanding of important phenomena over time. His point is, these scientists are often wrong, very wrong especially early on in the study of some aspect of the real world but the realization that the scientists understanding improves over time rather than springing from their heads fully formed like jove gives birth to a paradox the more novel the more novel rather the coronavirus that causes covid-19 the less accurate the scientists can be about it and hence the less reliable their policy prescriptions think about how our descendants will mock us for believing masks slowed viral transmission Now, he says, so Joe Biden and these other scientists invoking these scientists, what they really mean is I don't care enough about you to make difficult decisions. So I'm going to delegate to a group that I think you are dumb enough to defer to without question. A politician who really had the public's interest at heart would say instead, times are tough. Americans have died from a natural cause and more Americans are likely to. Unfortunately, there is not much we can do because viruses live by their rules, not ours. Executive orders and metaphorical wars can't stop them. Obviously, it's unconstitutional and deeply immoral to order the death of some people via murder, suicide, deferred health care, reduced income and the myriad of other costs of lockdown in order to save others. And we can't do the obvious and offer a live vaccine to volunteers quickly and constitutionally because there isn't sufficient profit in that. But, of course, those wouldn't be the words of a mere politician. He says those would be the words of a true statesman.